Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. Today's episode, Cider Coast, features a very good friend of mine, Megan Larmer, who is the Director of Regional Food at the Glenwood Center for Regional Foods and Farming. She holds an anthropology degree from the University of London, where her research focused on seed exchange, first-generation women farmers, and food heritage. Megan continues her social science research on food and farming as a PhD student at the University of Exeter's Center for Rural Policy Research. She has a broad range of experience in food and agriculture, including 10 years as a restaurant professional running one of the Midwest's largest and most successful farmers markets and an apprenticeship at Bread and Puppet Theater Farm. Megan, thank you so much for joining us on Point of Origin. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I have had a emerging love affair with cider from my time in California in the Bay Area getting to meet the makers and also taste the fruits of their labor, literally, and some wonderful ciders from Sebastopol. But on the other side of the country, in the Hudson Valley, I was not aware of how epic and prolific the cider community was until I met you. I'd love to know how you got involved or maybe how Glenwood got involved so directly and explicitly in wanting to support the cider community in the area? So the work around cider predates my time at Glenwood, and I I was actually brought into it by a former colleague of mine, Sarah Grady, who nearly 10 years ago was looking for inspiration in fulfilling Glenwood's mission to support a regional food system and, and looking for that inspiration to other parts of the world that had a strong sense of regionality in their their food and really tied that food to an agricultural space and to cultural resilience in rural communities. And she was inspired by Normandy in France, a region that has a pretty similar landscape to the Hudson Valley, and saw that there was you know a strong cider making community there and wondered why with the historic apple orchards here in the Hudson Valley, I mean, New York is the big apple, the apple state, Mm -hmm. why there was not this tradition of cider making in our own region. She hunted down the small handful of forward-thinking apple growers 
and beverage makers who were working in cider, and they did an exchange with the makers there in France. Coming back from that, were hugely inspired to recreate some of what they'd seen in France while also recognizing that America is a very different place and New York and the Hudson Valley are a very different place. And so I had worked to engage with the trade and start to build this category of cider, which was pretty much unknown at that point in the U.S. You know, there is certainly the history of apples and colonial settlement that is strong in in the Northeast, the, all the legends around Johnny Appleseed. The Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need, the sun and rain and an apple seed. Yes, he's been good to me and others who planted these seedling apples not only as a means of subsistence survival to have something safe to drink, but also as a means of claiming land and clearing the land that was by all rights occupied by the indigenous peoples of this country. So there's some complicated history in that. So the Hudson Valley was a huge apple producer, actually was shipping apples to England in the colonial period, well known and beloved for the amazing apples that were produced here. And that seedling world, which for folks who don't know, apples that produce from seedlings will produce highly variable fruits. So these are basically new apples. If you want the same apple, you have to do that through through grafting and more of a cloning process. So these seedlings were being grown like the Newtown Pippin is one of our most beloved varieties of apples from Newtown, New York, what is, what is now part of Queens. And these apples are gaining a lot of fame. Now, at the same time, cider was considered really a pretty rough country drink. It was used in in presidential campaigns to sort of smear candidates to say, you know, they just drank rough cider while we should be drinking champagne in the White House. The Whig Party predecessor to the Republicans decided to nominate as their candidate William Henry Harrison, a, a military hero. Although he was raised in a rather aristocratic Virginia family, Harrison supporters managed to recast their man uh, as the log cabin and hard cider candidate. Out on the campaign trail, uh, Harrison would swig hard cider during his stump speeches, and his supporters would uh, sing songs, chew tobacco, and punctuate the choruses by spitting. There was a lot of ideation around cider as being a rural, rustic, and particularly of our landscape kind of drink, while the aspirations of the upper class in the U.S. were looking towards Europe and moving into the Gilded Age with these ideas of, you know, all, all things worth having are coming from the continent rather than coming from our own soils here. During Prohibition, cider really did not survive well. It was much easier to make distilled spirits on the sly than it was to make cider. So a lot of the love of those American varietals that were specifically for cider making or crab apples or the mini seedlings that you know are called spitters, they're not nice to eat, but add incredible qualities to cider. Those were those sort of went by the, the wayside. And the revival of that practice really has only been in the last the last couple of decades on any kind of commercial scale. And what I always think is interesting to think about is there was not really ever a commercial industry for cider. So while the cider of today is using apples that were discovered, if you will, centuries before ours or being brought over from Europe the same way you would for wine grapes because they have known value as cider apples, the industry of commercial cider sale is something entirely new in the United States. And a lot of that is thanks to uh, some of the pioneers here in the Northeast and in New York. That is such an excellent point. This industry, as you're describing, obviously you can't talk about cider without talking about apples, and yet cider as a beverage in the consciousness of especially like millennial drinkers is mm -hmm. a new thing. And I myself, as a late millennial drinker, feel that I see cider more and more in restaurants and bars than ever with variable quality, but it seems as though the presence is higher than it's been since I can remember. Part of the interesting thing about working in cider right now is that it, it is like a new entrant into our thinking about drinks categories. There's a lot of internal grappling within the cider community about how we define that category <laughs> because we are working with, in many ways, more sophisticated drinkers because the the education of American drinkers around wine has given them some 
vocabulary to talk about cider, but so too the craft beer explosion has given some vocabulary to talk about cider. And we're really trying to find a way to, to define cider as itself rather than as an allegory or a substitute or a novelty drink uh, for when you aren't drinking wine or beer. Is really interesting to look at. And we have that kind of diversity. Certainly within the Hudson Valley, we have producers like Metal House and like Hudson Valley farmhouse ciders that are being produced, you know, more or less estate ciders, bottle conditioned, have really interesting different kinds of notes, very dry ciders, to a wonderful producer called Nine Pin Cider in Albany that is producing really great, really like easy drinking casual times cider and is a huge hit across the bars of Albany between cans of cider to 750 format to Magnum. If you're drinking almost anywhere, you're more likely to see more cider than you were previously. Uh, And part of the question is, how do we create an identity for what cider is that is as inclusive as possible and still carves out that unique space for it? That leads me to my next question, which is how does one go about the business of defining a drinking culture? Yeah. (laughs) Well, for for me personally, and certainly for Glenwood, our focus is that this is an agricultural product. Mm -hmm. So we got into the cider space because we wanted to see the orchards that have been here and the orchards that could be here have an opportunity to thrive in the face of tremendous pressures for real estate development, as well as all of the other pressures that go alongside being a farmer and the unique pressures of being an orchard that, you know, you make an investment in these trees and it could be seven, 10 years before you're seeing harvests that can can really justify that investment. So we have a, a strong, strong interest in defining cider as a truly agricultural product and really centering the apple as the key element of ciders that if, if you are working with a lower quality apple, then I, I don't think it's possible to make a really nice cider. And I think that we have plenty of examples of that in other fermented drinks. So to me, like the defining thing, ciders are made from apples. And that sounds really okay. basic, mm-hmm. uh, but there's plenty of market research to show that that's not a commonly understood concept in the the general public and there's been plenty of efforts to obfuscate that and in some ways aligning cider with beer does some of that obfuscating so a lot of the education we do is you know this is a product made from fruit made from the juice of this fruit fermented juice is what cider is and what that fruit is really matters to the quality of it so that's part of the education we try to do beyond that building a culture around a drink is slower and in some ways even more fun than just the education and marketing part because it means giving people that personal experience of seeing what the landscape is that the cider is coming from, seeing the faces and the people and the stories and the families and communities that are making that cider and giving giving them a chance to really experience it sort of as their own. So to that end, Glenwood founded uh, Cider Week in New York City, which has now evolved into Cider Week Hudson Valley, a Cider Week in the Finger Lakes, and a Cider Week in Western New York, all of which are now organized and led by the New York Cider Association, which is a statewide trade association that, that Glenwood founded as well and is now operating independently to really serve the growers and makers of, of the state. I remember one story in particular of a, I think it was a bunch of condos that were going to be built mm-hmm. um, over some really old apple orchards, but you all, obviously with the support of the local farmers, were able to band together and save the orchards. Can you talk about that story where that was happening and, and how that came to be? Yeah. So that's on a farm just up up the road from us here in Hopewell Junction. It's called Fishkill Farm. The farmer there, Josh Morgenthau, is, you know, in his early thirties, came back to farming after going to art school. He saw the land that his grandfather had carefully tended being portioned off to real estate development and to condos. And, you know, it just speaks to the fact that the Hudson Valley in general, making a living here as a farmer has historically always been incredibly difficult, but particularly with the growth of the city and the out-migration of folks who want to be living on one-acre properties rather than the 15, 20, several hundred-acre farms that were here saw that land being portioned out and sold off and really came back to the land with a strong desire to keep it whole. 
So Fishco Farms is a U-Pick farm that's been one of the really key innovations and strategies in keeping fruit farms going in the Hudson Valley, so opening up to a sort of agritourism world. But when he saw that the land that was no longer no longer part of their family farm was about to be sold off for condos and that orchard land uh, torn up, those trees torn up, we helped to coordinate with him and with land trust here in the Hudson Valley to preserve that land for agricultural usage. And they have, since that, been putting in more and more cider varietals, opening up that land to cider production. Josh is a really wonderful, just innovative thinker. He has put a cider works on site. He's opened a cider bar to add to the agritourism aspect. And they're also growing diversified vegetables and just doing a beautiful job of really activating that space as an agricultural space that is both productive and is helping to tell the story to a wider audience of the importance of those spaces. Brilliant. You really nailed it with kind of what's required on the end of the farmer for better, for worse, in terms of economic viability and sustainability. Mm -hmm. But I am particularly interested when programs or food and beverages can recenter thinking and conversations around agriculture, um, because mm -hmm. that disconnect is really so vast for many consumers that I'm just really grateful for your work. And if we wanted to drink some ciders, I know that you don't want to exclude anyone um, <laughs> from the Hudson Valley. I wouldn't ask you to do that, but maybe give us some uh, some notable ones for their character, or for their story. Sure. Well, so one of the really cool things that is happening now is that more and more cideries up here are opening tasting rooms in the Hudson Valley. And I think that is just such a, a wonderful experience to bring you out into the landscape and also to try a bunch of different ciders. I had to name some of my favorite tasting rooms to taste cider in. Certainly uh, Fishkill Farms and their treasury cider, and their ciders are really nice, and each has a, a particular history to that place and the fruit that they're producing. I'd also definitely recommend Orchard Hill Ciders, again, mm -hmm. a multi-generational family farm on Soon's Farm and Orchard, and Jeff Soon's, the, the current orchardist there, has a deep love for architecture and has built an absolutely beautiful tasting room that draws on the architecture of other historic cider regions. If you're in the city, step into Gramercy Tavern. They have an unparalleled cider list mm -hmm. on their their drinks menu by the glass. You can really walk through some of the, the greatest ciders being produced in the state with really knowledgeable staff. So I'd recommend all those. And yeah, if you're looking for a more casual time, Brooklyn Cider House has a great spot in Brooklyn to enjoy enjoy their ciders and some barbecue and some music. So, Megan, I appreciate you swinging by today to talk to us about cider and joining us on Point of Origin. Thank you, Stephen. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Okay. Ciao. That was Megan Larmer, the Director of Regional Foods at the Glenwood Center for Regional Foods and Farming. The Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need. The sun and rain and an apple seed, yes, he's been good to me. I wake up every day as happy as can be because i know that with his care my apple trees they will still be there oh the lord is good to me right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Point of Origin. Today, cider coast to coast and representing the West Coast, a really cool dude, someone that I like very much, an old friend of mine who has been making cider in Santa Cruz or just outside of Santa Cruz for the last couple of years. His company is Tanuki Cider, and we're very pleased to have Robbie Honda, cider maker, joining us today on Point of Origin. Thanks, Robbie. Hey, man. Thank you so much. I kind of mentioned to you that I have been theorizing about the rise of cider as I'm starting to see more small growers on restaurant lists and bars when I'm out and about in the world. But before we start to talk about cider at large, I wanted to talk to you about how you got into the business of making cider. Sure. Let me see. So I think the main inspiration came from some family history. My mom grew up in Western Sonoma County in a town called Sebastopol on the apple orchard that my great-grandfather planted almost 100 years ago. My grandmother was born and raised on this orchard as well as my mom and my five aunties and some of their cousins. And uh, my brother and I grew up down south in Orange County outside L.A., Southern California. But we'd spend all summers and, you know, holidays traveling up to the orchard to go visit family in Sebastopol. So, I mean, some of my fondest, earliest memories are outside of suburbia where running to the apple orchards with my cousins and cruising around throwing rotten apples at each other and 
eating fresh apples during the fall. Did it hurt to and get hit with a rotten apple, or is it just annoying? Yeah, <laughs> it's stinky, but it was really <laughs> fun. You know, it was super novel. We'd go up during Thanksgiving sometimes, you know, and that's pretty much post-harvest. Things are wrapping up up in Sebastopol, and there's a bunch of rotten apples on the ground that people haven't cleaned up, and no animals are running through, so... My brother and my cousins, we'd throw on our country clothes and go out in the orchard and run around and, and smash each other with apples. That was really funny. I love I it. I miss that. Yeah. Well, it's cool that you are still connected to that extremely long legacy. I didn't realize your family went back so far in Sebastopol. And for people who are not familiar with Sebastopol, can you say a little bit about their history? Again, you, as you mentioned, it's in Sonoma County, Northern California. But can you say a little bit about the history of cider and Sebastopol in particular? Yeah, I mean, before Sonoma County and Napa Valley were known as, as grape country, wine country, they were definitely apple country, especially western Sonoma County, where Sebastopol is located, close to the Russian River. It gets a lot of that coastal fog, similar to where I'm at now, in Central Coast in Santa Cruz. You know, there was a long history and tradition of, of apple growing in Sebastopol specifically. My great-grandfather came from Japan in the early 1900s, to San Francisco. The earthquake happened and he ended up in the countryside in Sebastopol as doing migrant apple labor. Back then, industry was booming. There were tons of packing houses, dryers, juicers, applesauce. I mean, there was a huge industry of apples going on in the early 1900s. My family was a part of that, like a lot of other people in the area. Agriculture was big and apples were huge. For my family, a lot of things changed during World War II. My grandmother and my great-auntie were born on the orchard. My family were interned into concentration camps across the country, and they had to leave. But they were lucky that they had a caretaker for the land, and after the war, they had something to come home to. A lot of other families in the area weren't so lucky. So after my great-grandparents and my grandma relocated back home to Sebastopol, that's when my mom and all my aunties were born and raised on the same orchard, still doing the same work that uh, they've been doing for decades before. With my family history, um, my mom and, and that generation wanted to get out of the apple biz and they were focused on education and moving to the city in the suburbs. That's where I grew up. And after remembering some of this tradition and this history, my brother and I kind of got interested in this idea to start a project out of nothing, you know, just kind of felt some sort of special connection to this history and to this piece of land. And, you know, a few years ago, we kind of threw it out there and I've gotten a lot of local support here in, in Santa Cruz where we're based out of now and living and working and connected to the greater Apple community and cider making community. And it's been, it's been a wild ride and a lot of work to do, but we're really grateful. It's really an incredible legacy that you're tied to and the way that you're showing up and honoring it is super inspiring. Is that property still in your family? Yeah. It is. It's in Gold Ridge designation in Sebastopol. A lot of apple trees have been ripped out and a lot of grapes have gone in. Pinot Noir especially is really kind of well known for that area. It was much larger in the past, but there's seven acres that remain. Our kids represent the fifth generation of that little piece of dirt, you know. It's definitely something that we're inspired by and proud of and trying to share stories in our experience here, you know, as a family and as just people trying to pull it off. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about it in such matter-of-fact terms, but it's not just apples. We also know that around the same time, agriculturally, you know, we have Japanese immigrants to thank for the rice culture of California, as well as the potato culture. As you mentioned, you are now a father. How important is that legacy for you in your own Household, or how much do you think about you know continuing and sharing that agricultural legacy with your family? Yeah, man, that's a great question. I think about that a lot. Our household is multi-ethnic and multicultural. My wife is from England. She's half English and half Mauritian. Her family has a really interesting and amazing history and, and legacy as well. As far as the Japanese American aspect of it. Yeah, I think when I kind of learned about all the history, I don't know exactly when that happened. I kind of like started to strongly identify with kind of those struggles and experiences that my family and other families, Japanese American families were going through, especially post-war and then the baby boomers, my parents' generation, kind of what they were going through. And it's interesting because my parents and my aunties, they kind of look at agriculture and even, you know, my 
outsider making aspirations as being a bit naive, which they're probably right. I mean, yeah, they were born and raised on this orchard with not a lot post-war, and their goals were through education and to leave the countryside and, and to power themselves that way. And I'm kind of going backwards a little bit and trying to remember some of that stuff and definitely, like, share that with my kids, but also, like, without trying to romanticize everything too much, I'm, you know, trying to, to share it with them. And then just, I don't know, like kind of create a, a new chapter in this experience. And the Cider Project is a, is a really amazing, creative way for us to do that, to connect to community. It's been really cool to do that. Yeah. And that is so often the case for children of immigrants or children really <laughs> of most marginalized groups whose ancestors have had to struggle for equality, have had to struggle for access into the workplace for equal employment. And it can be really disorienting for the old heads when the youth says, actually, I want to go back to the land and reclaim this part of our identity. So I'm super familiar with that tension that you speak of. So I want to talk to you now about this community that we're referring back to. When did you start uh, Tanuki? Tanuki started in 2015. How have you seen that community change and grow over the last four or five years? There were no cider businesses in Santa Cruz County specifically. And now, seven years later, I think there are six of us. You know, I think the first one was with Santa Cruz Cider Company in 2013. And who we've become really close to, we've collaborated on a lot of projects. We're helping each other out. We actually just bought a grinder and a press together that we're hosting, that's hosted by our apple grower in Corlitos in Watsonville. So there's a strong community. But yeah, since we've been involved, it's grown a lot. When we had our first release in 2015, we uh, were kind of hitting the roads and streets trying to promote and sell this one package product that we had. And there weren't very many cider options on drink lists and menus. I kind of came into this cider world from working on a farm in Santa Cruz in Soquel and working the farmer's markets. We did pasture-raised meats and had a CSA and worked with a lot of local restaurants in Santa Cruz County. So I had most of my connections were in the food world. So that's kind of where I was reaching out to first opposed to like markets or liquor stores it was to the restaurants and trying to focus on pairing cider with food as like our kind of like angle and also it being like a local product that's kind of most of the credibility that we had coming out was the fog line connection and us being like a small local business and we've gotten a lot of support locally man it means a lot you know i don't have a background in viticulture or enology you know i didn't come from an elite winemaking background or anything, you know, kind of came from a more fantasy world of this family history and working on a farm and experimenting with fermentation on a really simple kind of minimal intervention level, letting the fruit speak, trying to, you know, get the best source fruit available at the time and allowed it to do its thing and stand out of the way and doing small batches. And that's kind of like where we're, our whole identity has been like focused towards yeah, definitely. I kind of love that you have come to this industry with all heart. So coming into right that, that industry, knowing, I don't want to say very little, but maybe not mm -hmm. as prepared as people who had that formal education, what mm -hmm. were some of the, the challenges that you experienced in making that transition and what have you learned? Yeah, one of the, one of the more interesting things uh, right off the bat was that there weren't a lot of references to, to cider. You know, so when I was going around trying to talk about what we were doing and how to promote our products and share it. There wasn't a lot of knowledge and baseline for, you know, bar managers, owners to reference as far as what cider was and is. We are making like, you know, a dry, what we call farmhouse style ciders. I think that, you know, even five years ago, there wasn't a ton of commercially available ciders that had some of the characteristics that we were going for. I think a lot of people originally... Um, and still to this day, to be honest, you know, associate cider with being really sweet and carbonated. And so when we're trying to share our ciders and it has a completely different flavor profile, I think it was, especially, you know, back in 2015, really surprising to people. They weren't expecting it. And I think there's a big demand for this, like, this specific beverage in our style out there, you know? Mm -hmm. And can you explain in a little bit more detail, because I know that farmhouse 
cider is a thing that we see on many different bottles, but what does that actually mean if we if we see a farmhouse cider? Yeah, it's kind of blanket term, and I'm you know we're trying to figure out how to describe and label these products to where they have some meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the farmhouse term is similar to like a natural wine type of term. I mm-hmm. think the farmhouse term comes from England and it refers to a style of production, which generally, but not always, but most generally it refers to native and wild fermentation with yeast, unfiltered and unpasteurized, alive, minimal intervention, and, you know, kind of like minimal sulfite mm-hmm. added. And, you know, ours was bottle conditioned as well. So I think that when someone's going to claim that farmhouse term, you can assume that some or most of that or all of it is involved. But like I said, it, it's pretty maybe weak. <laughs> um, we just started a native and wild fermentation program last fall, 2019. And up until then, you know, all of our ciders were unfiltered, unpasteurized, bottled or canned conditioned. But we did inoculate with the yeast, like I said, up until last year. So when we put farmhouse on our labels, they weren't native and wild fermented. We did inoculate, but... So that's where it's kind of like tricky, maybe. Mm-hmm. And the apples that you are using for these spontaneous fermentations, what are some of the different varieties of, of apples that you all are working with? Yeah, so we're in Santa Cruz County. We live in Capitola, and we are really close to Watsonville, which has a similar history to Sevastopol. The industry here in Santa Cruz County has been afloat because of a big juice company that is in our backyard in Watsonville here. So a lot of the apple growers that still exist in Santa Cruz County have been growing for this company for a long time. And we were lucky that that industry still existed because that means there were still apple trees around, you know. So the varieties that we're using are kind of a legacy of, of these big, this big juice company that's like allowed it to, to survive and thrive. The Newtown Pippin is the kind of Pajaro Valley apple, or we've claimed it. It's actually from New York. There have been some really cool, like, terroir studies on this specific apple variety, the Newtown Pippin, where they take this one variety and had different ciders made from it from New York to Michigan, Southern California, Sonoma County, and, and Santa Cruz, and it's pretty fascinating. So we're lucky that the Newtown Pippin is established here in this area, and we're looking for... Uh, standard rootstock old trees that are dry farmed and organic ideally for what we're going for in our cider. Mm -hmm. So do you ever have a chance to use, I mean, I know logistically moving around a bunch of fruit up and down the coast is complicated, Mm -hmm. but do you ever have a chance to use some of the fruit from Sebastopol in the ciders? Yeah, no, I haven't yet. That's something that we we're working on and we'd love to collaborate. We have a lot of friends in Sonoma County that make cider and are apple growers. And, um, it's something that we're hoping to do here in 2019 with this harvest. Like in Sebastopol, we were talking about part of that legacy agriculturally being undermined or under threat with the growth of Sonoma County as a wine destination, which has really been mm-hmm. underway for you know many decades and still continues to this day. I know that that's a big concern in Sebastopol, the kind of preserving the legacy of these orchards. What about the fruit source closer to where you are in Capitola? Are there similar concerns about the the supply or viability of these old orchards? Of course, yeah. You know, where we're at specifically with the fruit that we're sourcing, mostly in Corleos and Watsonville, it hasn't been so much the grape industry, although the grape industry is, is alive and thriving big time, mostly in, in the mountains here in Santa Cruz County, but um, it's the berry industry. So mm-hmm. a lot of these old orchards are feeling a lot of pressure or have the same thing like you're talking about for decades with berries coming in. So ripping out these old orchards that have been established, you know, for decades, up to 100 years old, you know, ripped out and, and planting berries. So, yeah, there's a similar kind of like renaissance happening here in Watsonville. We're trying to rehabilitate and revive the apple industry. Cider is a way to do it. We're able to like diversify some of the, the income that these apple growers have traditionally been you know, used to, which is kind of like been monopolized by one way to, to sell a product. Totally. And are people starting to think differently about the role of these berry farms, which are presumably owned by very large 
multinational food companies. Are some of the farmers starting to think differently about preserving these orchards because you all have created a new higher value added product? Or is it still that cider is so small compared to the economics of these large scale agricultural outfits that it's still not really like a viable thing to to try to hold on to the orchards? Yeah, that's the that's the question. As far as I understand, I mean, just the price of apples is just so low. It's unfairly low, mm-hmm. you know, opposed to the price of, of berries. So the amount of money you can make off of an acre of berries to the amount of money you can make off of an acre of apples is you can't even compare it, you know. So I do empathize with these families, especially the older ones that have been around that are trying to figure out how to pull it off, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's our mission to trying to figure out how we can keep these old orchards around because, you know, once you rip out an orchard that's been standing for decades up to 100 years, I mean, obviously, the quality of that fruit's going to be completely different than an orchard planted two years ago, you know, getting fruit in five years, you know. So there's a huge value in these orchards. And how do we save them? That's the question. And in our small way, we're trying to, you know, empower the growers a little bit by offering them a better price for their fruit, you know, and, and highlighting this area and this growing industry as something of value for people to come to to support to check out, to walk through the orchards, to try the cider, you know, taste the terroir of this area, to, you know, share these stories. And hopefully it will, it'll help opposed to the opposite. Yeah. Well, we, we also as consumers need to help you out by drinking more cider, which is an easy ask really, (laughs) right? So um, last question for you is just around the viability of, of your work. You know, I, what you're doing is not just important because of the delicious value-added product, but I certainly look at your work this way, which is as a preservationist, you know, not only in your own family, but in creating new possibilities for the existence of these orchards. But what about you yourself and Tanuki? Are you feeling Uh positive or hopeful about your long-term viability in this work, or is it too early to say? Yeah, no, thanks. No, we're definitely excited. Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, me, uh, us having a, a young family here in Santa Cruz, we are trying to pull it off in this town and we get a lot of support locally and it means a lot. Our style of cider making maybe is, is just, I don't know how common it is. I've met a few people that are kind of in our position, but we don't have our own production facility or tasting room. We've worked with like a handful of different wineries that have helped us produce our ciders. We're renting take space over here in Soquel and over here on the west side. And so our goals now are to find a home, set up shop, mm-hmm. get our own equipment, and, you know, maybe set up a little tasting room. There are a lot of examples here, mostly in the wine industry in Santa Cruz County that we admire and are a big inspiration for us. They've been able to keep things small and independent. You know, there's a couple wineries in Santa Cruz that I can think of specifically that do, do their production and have a tasting room under 3,000 square foot facilities and they do 90% of their business through their front door and even more, you know, with a handful of wholesale accounts. And that's something that we are trying to do. I think that if we could go retail and still self-distribute wholesale and offer our products to our community, I, that's kind of like where we're at. And I do feel hopeful. Yeah. Looking forward to like what happens next. Yeah, that is definitely the move. You know, every day that you have an opportunity to keep doing this work is a day that you're you're winning. So congrats to you for the last four years and what you've built and where can people buy your cider so that we can facilitate you getting that tasting room? So about 90 percent of our business is in Santa Cruz County. If anyone's familiar with, with Santa Cruz, the usual suspects are places that you can find our ciders. So you got to come to Santa Cruz. That's the moral of the story. Hey, you know what? It's a, <laughs> it's a live, it's a living product. So that will preserve its integrity. So, uh, and Santa Cruz is a lovely place to visit. This has been a lovely conversation with Robbie Honda, who is the founder of Tanuki Cider, continuing a 100-year legacy in his family, making cider and working with apples. Really, really good stuff. Thanks a lot for joining us today on Point of Origin. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Point of Origin. Today, cider coast to coast. And I am in Oakland, California with Olivia Mackey and Mike Reese of Redfield Cider. And we are going to talk about cider. So thanks for hosting me in your shop before opening. Thanks for being here. And we apologize in advance if any deliveries happen. (laughs) (laughs) This is a working space. Yeah. Well, hopefully you guys get some deliveries because that means uh, you're turning over the inventory, which is good. No issues turning over inventory since we opened. So you guys opened eight months ago. And has that fast turnover been the case from the beginning or is that a new thing? Actually, Ben, um, when we when we first opened, we had no idea really how the business would be received. There weren't any other cider bars in the area that we could point to and say, this is our model and this is going to work. We actually looked at a lot of different wine and beer bars to sort of figure out, you know, if that same systems in place would work for this space itself. And we've been pleasantly surprised. It's been a pretty popular joint since we opened. So when you wanted to open, you guys were looking at like wine bars or small breweries as examples of kind of the vibe you wanted to establish? Yeah, I think anything that felt like it fit within the neighborhood itself and had a sense of place was important to us. We intentionally designed Redfield to actually be pretty small. We have about 25 seats and that was really set up to to create an intimate space. So as soon as someone walked in, Mike and I would be able to greet them, make eye contact and really provide excellent customer service. Yeah, we knew, you know, cider bar was going to be a new concept for a lot of people. And so uh, while there are, you know, a couple of cider bars or there were a couple of cider bars in the Bay Area when we opened a couple of really cool cider bars, we also kind of knew, you know, if we want to be a place where people are going to be comfortable coming in to try cider for the first time, it had to be a really cool and welcoming space beyond just a place that has a bunch of ciders. Um, So, yeah, we were definitely like looking at our favorite beer bars, our favorite wine bars, and seeing like what worked there and trying to bring some of that in. So let's talk about your origins in cider. How did you all get to the point where you wanted to dedicate your entire life to selling and drinking cider? Yeah, I mean, Mike and I have been in the food and beverage industry for the past 10 years. My background's actually more in agriculture and in food, and Mike's definitely been working in the beer industry for a long, long time. And we started drinking cider probably like six or seven years ago. I had, Before I met Mike, I'd never really thought about cider spent much time trying it at all and we tried some tilted shed cider up in Sonoma County and I just remember tasting it and being like I didn't know cider could taste like this this is delicious and what is the this 
Um, you know, tilted sheds ciders have a ton of tannin. They have a lot of character. You know, really beautiful like floral notes. And I just remember being like, oh, this is kind of like wine. Like I'm drinking this and I'm enjoying this like wine. And then I learned more about you know how they're growing the apples and the thought and care that they put into making all of their ciders, and was just blown away. And then I had this moment where I was like. Why doesn't everybody know about this? Like, why aren't we not drinking this? Why is this not on all of the menus? And over time, made more and more cider ourselves, just in our backyard, got to know more and more cider cider producers and apple growers, and kind of just fell in love with the beverage and spawned into, well, there's like no place to drink cider and like learn about it. And, you know, given our backgrounds, maybe, maybe we should do it. Are we crazy enough to start our own business? Yeah, yeah I, I um, first got into cider as a like beverage program director at a really beer focused spot in San Francisco and we definitely like started having people ask about cider and I was like I don't know anything about this. Um, this was like 2011 probably somewhere around there and there was certainly a lot of cool stuff happening in cider at that point but I was not aware of it so that was when I started seeking out more and more stuff and me and Liv started drinking it and making it ourselves and I kind of got to the point where I was like, oh, I want to be able to buy more cool stuff. I'm hearing about all this great stuff in the Pacific Northwest and all this great stuff in the Northeast that I don't have access to as like a buyer for a restaurant and that led to me going and working at a wholesaler and like trying to bring in a bunch of cool producers and then like getting frustrated with trying to sell it to retailers that didn't care about it and so then like it was like, all right, well, we're just going to have to open the shop ourselves. (laughs) So that timeline kind of checks out for me as a cider lover in terms of seeing new ciders in the marketplace and having a similar experience, illuminating experience that was more evocative of like wine. So we're now talking, let's say like maybe seven, eight years or so. It's not like there's cider bars, you know, on every corner or anything like that. But you guys both kind of had a specific markation of when you saw this trend both in your own lives and an opportunity um, maybe more commercially. So what have you observed over the course of the last half decade or so to either support those ideas that you had in the early days or maybe kind of a running counter to some of the assumptions that you were making about where the industry would be at this point? I think that's such such an important question to ask because something that Mike and I say a lot is I don't even think this business would have worked three years ago. And we, we've been talking and thinking about this probably for like three or four years and timing was such a huge part of that, of when do we think that specifically the Bay Area would be ready for a space like this and be open to trying it. And we do think that like we were pretty spot on with, with the opening. Speaking of timing, then you guys are really well-timed because if you like a good underdog story, this is the moment, right? And if we look at, microbrewers preceding cider maybe 10, 15 years ago as the underdogs, it's not maybe so great, you know, the direction of those microbrewers in terms of consolidations and acquisitions and a more crowded, if and not necessarily better, marketplace. So are you guys uh, and other your cider colleagues looking at some of the, the perils of the craft beer movement as what not to do? Are you guys not thinking about it in those terms? I think we're constantly looking at the wine and beer industry and making comparisons. We do think that cider is its own thing, but there are a lot of parallels that you can draw from from both. And in terms of, you know, trends that we could skip over, I think we could really look at the beer industry and just completely pass over all of like the sexist beer labels. Like I'd be totally okay with that. Take note, cider industry. But yeah, I mean, in terms of growth, there are some parallels of like, if you look at some of the like Nielsen data around the growth in the cider industry, especially around, among small producers, it's really exciting to see. But we just don't quite have the sales data that a lot of the beer and wine industry do, because oftentimes if you look at those data sets, cider is like a subcategory of beer, <laughs> even though it's not beer at all, it's, it's technically wine. So it's, it's hard to kind of like dig into those numbers, I think, in the same way. Well, let's talk about natural wine specifically i mean we've mentioned wine are there elements of the comparisons or the observations that you're taking from the wine industry that are is it broad based or are you looking at natural wine as a category as a a place to also take some lessons from i mean there is a huge 
a huge supporter of Redfield has been the natural wine industry. And a lot of our customers that come in are people who seek out natural wine and they also seek out cider because of some of the similar, you know, tasting parallels between the two groups. And so it's been exciting for us too. I mean, also a lot of natural winemakers are also cider makers. So we carry a lot of those people and the, the cider that they make here. And natural wine is also like having a moment right now for sure. And I'm I'm sort of happy to to cling on the those coattails and, and bring cider along with it as much as we can to a new audience for sure. Yeah, I mean I love drinking natural wine, but I don't really consider myself a part of that industry or scene. But my perception as a bit of an outsider is that there's just kind of this excitement about breaking tradition and norms. And I think the fact that cider doesn't have quite as much of that, at least here in the U.S., is kind of part of what's made it appealing to that scene. Um, and yeah, we're definitely trying to encourage drinking across across uh, fruit boundaries. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a trend in cider now to do um, wine, cider, like co-ferments or hybrids. And I've definitely been really excited by a lot of those. So I think some producers are probably thinking the same way. And what's happening in the cider industry right now is so many consumers don't know how to buy cider. They don't, they walk into a grocery store and they don't know how to figure out what's it going to taste like. Um, you know, am I going to enjoy this? Is it worth the price point? And packaging can say so much about that. And I remember in our podcast, we were actually like pretty adamant that we thought 750s should maybe start to, to go away and, and producers should be more open to smaller formats because they're more approachable to consumers. And we've since sort of um, taken those words back since opening Redfield because 750s have been incredibly popular and a great format for us to sell on the shelves. So is what changed? Do you think it was the passage of time and like a more mature marketplace because now you're saying here you guys are having some success with it so so what do you you think changed based on those prior experiences i mean redfield is is a very different cider experience than you will get anywhere else in the bay area we really heavily curate what we bring in we offer on and off premise so you can taste stuff and then take it home and our our ethos behind our buying practices is to create almost like a like a safety net so everything that we bring in has to pass through our buying practices and in addition to that it has to be something that mike and i like to drink um, so we only sell stuff that we like to drink, and we have a really wide range of stuff that we appreciate and like to drink. So whenever you come in and you walk in, you're like, hey, I want to buy a bottle. Like, can you help me? You're going to get a really, really in-depth experience with one of us. Also, there's probably a lot to be said about the kind of person who would find their way into this kind of an establishment. But what about if someone's listening to this who is not in Rock Ridge and Oakland, but now they're sufficiently intrigued about drinking cider. What's the best way for like a common person in a common place to engage in this journey of cider? It's a tough question to answer just because, you know, like the, the availability of cider throughout the country varies so much. If you can find a place that has a cool cider selection, what, what we usually look for like on cider labels is some kind of transparency about, about what goes into it, whether that's like production methods or agricultural practices that lead to the fruit that they're sourcing for the use in the cider. Uh, that's stuff that we really look for because, you know, usually if someone is spending more money on fruit and taking the care to select varieties that they're using to kind of generate a specific flavor profile that they're hoping to kind of hit, then uh, it means they're proud of it and want it to be on the label. That's a very uh, short, shorthand like way of, of approaching things. You know, in a lot of places in the country, it's just like getting that first cider on the restaurants, you know, list or in the grocery store shelves, you know, it's uh, it's not always an easy thing to achieve. But I guess just you know, asking of it, getting relationship with your retailers, and and uh, showing some kind of support that they're going to move if they bring it in. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I would also just encourage people to try a couple of different ciders. So oftentimes, if you're at a restaurant, there's like one cider on the menu, and can you imagine going to a restaurant and there just being one wine? 
It's like, nope, all we've got is this like Pinot Noir and like that's all the wine that we carry. And that's kind of what's happening to cider right now. It's getting sort of pigeonholed into just being like, you know, one last like thought as like a gluten-free alternative. And so if you try one cider and you don't like it, I would encourage you to try like five or six because similar to wine or beer, there's such variation and flavor and texture and, and it's just such a nuanced beverage. I really can't state that enough. And to just reiterate what Mike said, I mean, cider is an agricultural product. And if you meet people who are growing apples, they might know someone who's making cider, and that could be another great way to, to try and figure out like who, who is really in touch with the fruit that they're using, because it's probably going to be a much higher quality product. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of places you go, you can, you can try the first five or six ciders that you encounter, and, and maybe they're, they might all be getting bulk juice from the same source and amending it with you know organ fruit puree or whatever. There may not even be like a huge range across those first five or six ciders that you try. So I often like to steer new drinkers to try imports, knowing full well that like they may not even like it, but just to kind of like set the tone that like here's something totally different that you might be excited by. Like we offer, we always offer a flight on our menu that's like a pretty big range of ciders, like knowing full well that most people will not like all three of them. And we kind of present it that way. Like here you can try it a big range of stuff and then we can go from there which is a little bit of a hard experience to replicate in a lot of the country but you know there are also some options like like uh, one of our better cider retailers and an, an incredible wine retailer in the bay area is knl wines and they ship to like 40 states or something like that so you know maybe if your town doesn't have a great cider selection that's an avenue worth exploring is finding some cool online retailer that can ship to you on the one hand it feels like cider is super duper taking off and becoming more ubiquitous, especially in coastal cities, we'll say. And there's more labels, the marketing and the packaging is getting better. And there's like this sense of inevitability that like cider is the next big thing. But on the other hand, even since you guys have opened, it's not like there's cider bars popping up on every corner and there's still a lot of consumer education that has to happen. And it just feels kind of further away from like coming to a grocery store, like a Kroger near you. So I wonder, since you guys have been here for eight months, knowing all you know about cider, both about your special situation here in Oakland and the marketplace more broadly, how much truth is there in this kind of inevitable next thing for cider? And how much of that am I perpetuating just because I'm living in these coastal cities where I'm seeing it more and more? Oh, one thing that's been most exciting to me about being in this space and like seeing what kind of customers come through here is that there's a lot of young people, like a lot of college kids from Cal come in here and it's just, you know, drinking cider is just a super normal thing for them. And I, I have seen some, some of that supported in, you know, Nielsen trends, just in terms of like the, how young cider drinkers are by and large. And that's, really encouraging. I don't think people are going to like get passionate about cider and then just, you know, stop drinking it as they get older. So, you know, I think as, as that base gets older uh, and hopefully like, you know, cider continues to resonate with, you know, younger generations as they grow into drinking age, that's, uh, I think, a really healthy sign for cider's future. So that's really encouraging to me. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to predict the future, but I would say that Obviously, we're optimistic about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have started a business doing it. But I would say that the past couple of months have been really encouraging in terms of the type of people that we're getting in here and like, you know, just the volume that we've been able to do. It's been really encouraging. Okay. Well, TBD is the answer. All right, Mike, Olivia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about cider today. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having us. That's it for this episode. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. 
Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. And thanks to all of you for supporting Whetstone and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. For all of the latest on all things Point of Origin, you can follow us on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. We'll see you next week at the Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.